worship team. As long as people are moving around, the kids can go to children's church, too. Thank you. Well, let's take our Bibles and we will turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be concluding our study in 1 Timothy, and guess what we'll be going into next? 2 Timothy, great guess. That's right where we'll be headed. But as we come to the text that we'll be looking into this morning, we find that the Word of God closes Timothy out with a charge to the wealthy. Now, before any of you look at yourselves and say, well, I can immediately tune this out because, man, I'm not wealthy. Let me challenge you with this. By global standards, there's probably not a person in this room who isn't considered very wealthy. When I went to Kenya, I talked with Bishop John. And I said, what's a good income in Kenya? You know what he told me? $1,200 a year. That would be the equivalent in shillings that is considered a very good income. How many of you would like to get by on $1,200 a year? And by the way, their prices on produce and other things aren't that significantly different than ours. They have to really eke out an existence. So before you look at yourself and say, well, I'm kind of at the bottom of the heap, not at the top, that may be true in the United States, but it's not true worldwide. God has blessed this country and us as a people with abundance. And as those who have been blessed with abundance, we need to have a good perspective. We need to have a biblical perspective on it. We need to set some priorities with our money because... Our money is a reflection of our values. You see, what I invest my money in demonstrates where I really believe the important things are. We say, put your money where your mouth is. Well, really what we're doing is putting our money where our values are. And we need to understand that God entrusts money to us to be wise stewards with it, to honor Him, And not to necessarily please ourselves. And that reminder is given to us in the text that we're looking into this morning. Our culture has an unusual idea of what being a success is. Take a person who's on their fifth marriage. Their kids are a disaster. They basically live alone except when somebody wants something from them. They aren't happy. They aren't fulfilled. But they're considered a success. Take that to another level. Look at a person who's on their fifth or sixth marriage. who's had 15 plastic surgeries. They have to see a shrink or an army of shrinks in order to cope. They have a drug habit, their life is a train wreck, and yet they're a celebrity. You know what celebrity means? It comes from a Latin word that means praiseworthy. And I would ask you, apart from being well-to-do and popular, what's praiseworthy about that? 
So we have an upside-down understanding of what's truly valuable and what's really important. And that's what the Word of God addressed here. Now look at the 17th verse. As we come to the 17th verse, we see a biblical perspective on wealth. And the 17th verse begins with Timothy being told to command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Now, what we find in this is a command that he is to teach a value system to the wealthy. And that value system begins with resisting putting our value as a person or our hope in wealth. And I want us to think about that for a moment. Many of us indeed put tremendous value on a person's portfolio, on whether or not they're wealthy. In our culture, we tend to assign a great deal of value to a person's economic standing. But in this passage, what the Scripture wants us to see is this. We're selling ourselves short if our only value is drawn from who we are in the business community, what we make, the power and influence that we have in this age. Because here's the perspective we need to keep. This age, or as the NIV does a good job of translating it, this present world lasts but a moment. When you read Scripture, you know how this life is described a vapor. It's here for a little bit, and then it just sort of disappears. It's described as grass that soon withers because in the ancient Near East, when wind blows through, grass will grow up in the morning with a bloom on it, and by the time the hot wind blows through, it's shriveled. That's the description the Word of God gives on this life. So, if all of my energy... All of my desire is directed toward acquiring everything that I can for this life. I'm really selling myself short. Eternity compared to this life is really no comparison at all. This life is like a dot on the timeline. And if, again, I'm investing all that I have, all that I do in this present world... I'm being foolish. I'm being short-sighted. Now, look at what the Word of God goes on to say. Those who are rich in this present world are to resist a couple of things. First of all, they're to resist being arrogant. Now, the word arrogant is most clearly translated high-minded. In other words... You look down on other people because they aren't as well off as you are. And when we look at it, isn't that a part of our society? We really ascribe value to those who have and no value to those who have not. And sometimes when we move into the those who have category, we can become arrogant You know, I'm a self-made man. I got everything that I got by hard work and by wise decisions. Listen, there are a lot of people in this world who work hard and make good decisions and don't make it. And we need to understand that. But there can be an arrogance that settles in to where 
We look and we say, look what I did. Look what I accomplished. We need to be so careful not to be those kinds of people. Not arrogant like that. But you know what else we do? Sometimes the reverse works. We look at a person who has made it, whatever your definition of made it is. And isn't it interesting how the definition of made it escalates as you gain more? Right? We always look and we're never quite satisfied with where we are. There's always that idea that we have to make more. But when we have that perspective, you know what happens? We start to look at other people who have made it, and we start to ascribe more value to them than to ourselves and to others. James talks about this in his letter when he says this, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who love Him. We lose perspective. We start to look at those who are well-to-do and we say they're somehow a notch above. They're better. God doesn't consider a person's monetary value whatsoever. He looks at the heart. And God is telling us we should do the same. I have known people who haven't made much money but have a depth of faith that makes them richer than anybody I know. And then I've known some people who have made a lot of money, and they are miserable. They aren't happy with themselves. They aren't happy with their circumstances. They're in a state of misery. Not the state of Missouri, but misery. (laughs) And they suffer. Now look at what else we find in this text. The Scripture goes on in the 17th verse to not only talk about resisting arrogance, but also the idea that we need to resist putting our hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Man, if you can't see that wealth is uncertain in these current economic times, there's something wrong with you. You're not paying attention. Anybody can lose what they have, or they can lose the ability that they have to enjoy what they do have because they become ill, because of circumstances. Any number of things can take away our ability to enjoy what we have or to even possess what we have. It's uncertain. So what the Word of God wants us to do is another perspective in resisting the attitudes of this world as far as wealth is understand this, that I'm not to put my hope in those things. I'm not to look at my investments and say, here's my security. I'm not to look at my job and say, here's my security. And that's kind of laughable nowadays, isn't it? Counting on your job. I can't look at my retirement and say, man, my nest egg is set. None of those things are certain, are they? And we're really discovering that as a nation. 
What we need to understand is the only thing that's certain is God Himself. And if I'm looking at what I can acquire and amass as my hope and my security, and I'm not saying be foolish and don't save or invest, but what I am saying is this, if that becomes my hope and my God, I will be found to be foolish. I love a parable that Jesus told. Luke chapter 12, verse 16, He told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and then I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This night, your life will be required or demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Now look at verse 21. This is how it will be for anyone or with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. That pretty well lays it on the line, doesn't it? If I'm putting my hope in the things of this world, I don't know if I'll be around to enjoy it. Look at some of the wealthy people who have been at the top, contracted cancer, and all the money and all of the doctors and all of the riches in the world can't save them. They die. Look at some of the people who have been wiped out by what looked like a solid investment. The conventional wisdom all says invest and then it goes south and they lose it. We can't know what's going to happen with material things. There's one constant, one thing that we can look at and know that it will always be there for us. And it's not an it, it's a person. And it's God. God is always there for us. We can count on Him. And that's what the Word of God wants us to remind ourselves and those who are well-to-do of. Now, look at what else we find in this text. Verse 17 goes on to talk about a perspective on wealth that we should have, and that is this. Remember who provides everything that you have for your enjoyment. Look at what it goes on to say after it talks about the uncertainty of riches. The Scripture goes on to say, but... We're to put our hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. You know, I started thinking about this verse, and really, the first part is a given, isn't it? We're to put our hope in God. As I said a moment ago, God is the only constant. God will never change. He will never leave us or forsake us, we're told in Scripture. God will always be there for us. Whether we have plenty or little, God is there. And we can count on that. And really, that's the only hope that we should have. You know what the word hope means? It means a confident expectation in something. Something that we can get a hold of and count on. Something that we can look at and say, hey, this is it. This is where I'm entrusting myself because I won't be disappointed. That's what hope means. 
And that's who God is. He is that one that we can count on. That doesn't always mean that God will do the things that we want Him to do in the time that we want Him to do it. But I want you to think about this for a moment. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior and He's given you salvation, what more do you need? If God never gave us anything else, just at the end of our life, He would welcome us into His presence because of Jesus Christ. That's more than we deserve. But God chooses to bless us in this life as well as in the life to come. And what the Scripture points out is He gives us things for our enjoyment. Listen, the Scripture isn't against believers having things that bring them enjoyment. God provides that. What we're to do is to honor Him in the enjoyment of those things. We're not to look at it and use it selfishly. We're to share it with others. We're to take the things that God has entrusted to us, recognize that they are from Him, and be blessed by it. But you know what we do in our selfishness? God gives us something. We enjoy it for a minute. And then a TV commercial comes on and says, you know, the newest one of these is out. Yours is old and cruddy. But look at this shiny new thing. You can have this, and your life will be complete, right? Or, we buy something, our neighbor next door buys something a little nicer, and we look at it and say, I'm so deprived. Why can't I have what they have? I actually had a Christian one time tell me, and he lived well, and he was in a nice home, that he was so disappointed that his neighbors had such nicer stuff than he had. And he knew it was because he tithed. If he took the money that he tithed, he could have nice stuff too. Can you believe that? What a farce. What foolishness. But I started thinking about this verse and something else occurred to me. You know what? If you don't have the right perspective... Even the stuff that God has given you for your enjoyment, you won't enjoy. You'll look at it and always think, I need more. I need better. And there was a man in the scripture who took that course and discovered that there's only emptiness. Solomon wrote this in Ecclesiastes. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for my labor. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. Chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. That's the perspective. Even if you get the things you think you want, Once you get it, you look at it and go, eh, wasn't what I thought it would be. We need to understand God provides us with blessings for our enjoyment. 
So you know what I'm doing when I'm saying I'm dissatisfied with what God has provided? That's a slap in the face of God. We've all seen spoiled brats that get something. And someone has worked hard to provide that for them and with thought and care and love has presented it to them and then the spoiled brat throws a fit. That isn't the one I wanted. You know, we're being spoiled brats when we do that with God. God provides us with something. That's okay, but it's not the one I wanted, God. We need to have a perspective that's more biblical. Now, as we continue in the text, we move on to more about this perspective. And that is this. We need proper use of what God has entrusted to us. If God has blessed us with much, rather than hoarding it all to ourselves and saying, this is all mine, we need to use it to richly bless others. Listen, if God has blessed us, He hasn't blessed us so that we can be selfish. God has blessed us so that we can be a blessing to others. Look at what verse 18 goes on to say. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Couldn't be clearer. God wants us to bless others with the things that He has given to us. You know, when you look in history... And you think of people who were selfish with what they had been given. You can't help but think of Hetty Green. She was called the Witch of Wall Street in the early 1900s. She inherited what would have been the equivalent of $107 million in today's dollars. Well-to-do. You know how she lived? As a pauper. She wouldn't allow hot water in her house because it cost too much to heat. When her laundress would do her laundry, she would say, only do the dirty parts because I don't want to spend the money on soap. Her son had a wound on his leg that she didn't allow to be treated. And then when she finally did allow it to be treated, she sent him to a clinic for the poor. When they discovered who she was and who he was, they kicked her out. And she tried to medicated herself, only to find that the leg had to be amputated because gangrene had set in. She didn't take her money and use it to enjoy, and she didn't use it to minister to others. And as a result, she's notorious as the world's worst miser. God does not want us to be heady greens. He wants us to take what he has entrusted to us and do good with it. Now, look again at this 18th verse. Twice in the first part of this verse, it says, do good, be rich in good deeds. God wants us to be people who are committed to good works, to take what he gives to us and to bless others with it, not hoard it, Not say, mine, mine, mine. But say, how can I minister to somebody else? How can I give to others? And listen, you don't have to be rich in order to do that. You can do it through helping people, 
ministering to people, serving behind the scenes. There are scads of ways that we can do good with the little that God gives. As a matter of fact, I would say to you, it's not the quantity that God's so concerned about as far as the quality. You see, it's easier for a tremendously wealthy person to just write a check than to actually go somewhere and do something. Isn't it? Sometimes we'll look and we'll say, oh man, you know, there's a need here. Okay, I'll write a check. Go away. That's not what God is talking about. He's talking about good deeds, actually becoming involved in another person's needs. And look at what we find as we go on in the text. We're to be generous. Now, generous is an interesting word in the original language. It's an active word. It means becoming involved in another person's needs. As a matter of fact, it's a word in the original language that means to distribute. In other words, we take the resources that God has entrusted to us and we distribute it to those who are in need. That's the idea that the Word of God shares with us in this text. And by the way, it's a voluntary thing, not a tax thing that the Word of God's talking about. See, if you're compelled by somebody else to take what you have and give it to others, you're not doing it with the right heart. Generosity is something that comes from your heart, not under compulsion. So the Word of God is telling us that it should be something that we're self-motivated to do, not because we're forced into it. In other words, don't view your income taxes as generosity. Don't rationalize it by saying, well, all of that goes to the poor, so... uh, I'm taken care of. (laughs) Understand that we have a responsibility to become involved in other people's lives and minister to them. As a matter of fact, look at what the last part of the passage says. Generous and willing to share. Now, what the NIV translates as share is a Greek word koinonia, and it means fellowship. In other words, partnering with another person when they're in need. Stepping outside your comfort zone and saying, hey, here's a person with need, now I will care for them and minister to them. That's the idea. That's what the wealthy are to do. To care for those who are in need. What's the payoff? Look at the last part of this passage. Verse 19. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I love this 19th verse. With an investment here, you could have an impressive portfolio. You can have everyone say, wow, you've really got it together. Really managed. Then you die. It gets distributed, taxed. It's gone, right? Done. What about the things that we do for eternity? The Scripture calls it laying up a foundation for the age that is to come. Isn't that a great way of looking at this? Each work, each deed, each thing that I do out of worship for God, not to earn my salvation, you can't earn it anyway, but to worship God and to honor Him has an eternal benefit. Do you get that? We're laying a foundation that counts. Lay a foundation here 
and it cracks, fractures, and eventually is taken away. Lay a foundation there forever. That's a perspective we need to keep. Am I building that foundation there? Am I laying the foundation for my eternal reward? That's what we need to ask ourselves. And then the last part of the verse. So they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now go back to verse 12. In verse 12 it says, Fight the good fight. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Same idea in verse 12 that we find here in verse 19, taking hold of eternal life, the life that is truly life. And as we saw, taking hold of it means I start to understand. I start to get it. I start to see that that is the life that counts. And I'm starting to truly grasp what it means for right here and for right now. But here in the 19th verse, even a little bit of a different emphasis is given. When it says, take hold of the life that is truly life, it's not just talking about eternal life, but it's talking about this life as well. You see, serving God brings fulfillment in this life. How many of you have done something? I'm not looking for a show of hands, just in your own heart. How many of you have done something for somebody? And afterwards, you are so blessed by what you've done. You can't hardly stand it. You're giddy. You want to share what you did as far as a blessing with somebody else, but you don't want to have that motivation of doing it for the praise of men. So you keep your mouth shut, but you're bubbling over inside because you're so happy with the opportunity that you've just had to care or minister to another person. I'll tell you, that's life. That's taking hold of the life that is truly life. And that's what God wants us to have as perspective. We need to be people who look to the eternal and have our value placed in that. Third and final point. When we come to verses 20 and 21, Paul directs one more command toward Timothy. And really, all of these are about priorities. In verses 17 through 19, it was priorities concerning wealth. But now, in verses 20 and 21, it's priorities concerning the Word of God. And I want you to look at what he tells Timothy as we come to the 20th verse. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Now, for the wealthy... Wealth has been entrusted to their care. But to Timothy, something far more valuable than wealth was entrusted to his care, and that was the Word of God. See, as you remember, Timothy was the pastor at the church of Ephesus. He had a responsibility for distributing the Word of God. And with that high privilege comes a great deal of responsibility. Look at what he's responsible to do. He's first of all to guard what was entrusted to him. That word guard has two ideas with it. The word that's translated guard in the NIV can also mean obey. Do what it says. Let me tell you something. A great deal of harm can be done by the servant of God 
who doesn't practice what they preach. If they say something and then live in complete opposition to what they've said, their words have no power. As a matter of fact, they discredit the Word of God. So guarding carries with it the idea of obedience. And this applies not only to the servant of God, but to all of us. If I'm to be a steward of what God has entrusted to me, His Word, I have to obey it. And then secondarily, I have to protect it. Guard also carries with it the idea of protection. In other words, as false doctrine creeps into the church, the responsibility of those entrusted with the Word of God is to make sure it stays pure, that it's not corrupted by the false teaching of this world around us. And to drive this point home, Paul talks about refraining from ungodly chatter and false doctrine. Look at what he says in the last part of this verse. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. Now, what is the Scripture talking about here? First of all, the godless chatter. The godless chatter really refers to chatter that doesn't address what God addresses in Scripture. It's the musings of man. Have you ever heard someone say, you know, I like to think of God as... And then they say something that's totally unscriptural. That's godless chatter. If what we think of God as doesn't match up with what God has revealed Himself to be, then it's pure, godless chatter. I don't base my knowledge of God on feelings. I base my knowledge of God on on, on what God has said He is, on who He said He is. And I don't embellish on it. If it's not revealed, then don't give it any thought or discussion. Don't engage in those things. And you know, there's such a danger in this. When people get too smart for their own good, and they start going beyond what Scripture has said about God, and they start the chatter that goes on, saying things that really aren't in Scripture, but as authoritatively as if they were, a lot of confusion sets into the church. That's to be avoided. But then, look at the last part of that 20th verse. These opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. Now, right at the end of that verse, Paul introduces a destructive heresy that was in the first century, Gnosticism. As a matter of fact, the word that's translated knowledge is the same root word that Gnosticism comes from. And I'm sure all of you are going, mmm, Gnosticism, yes. What in the world is Gnosticism? Gnosticism was a mixture of Christianity and Greek philosophy that became prevalent in the first century. So the Gnostics believed that all material and flesh are evil. So you know what they said? Jesus only appeared as a spirit. There wasn't really flesh because if there were, he would have been evil. Or another 
branch that spun off of Gnosticism said, well, you know, he checked out right before the cross. And something else died on the cross, but not him. Now, is that what the Scripture says? Not even close, right? It talks about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and His bodily resurrection. And that's why the Scripture in so many passages talks about Jesus coming in the flesh and how He'll be raised again in the flesh on the third day. Jesus made that clear. And how we will be raised again in the flesh. A resurrection will take place. So what God is telling Timothy and us through this text is this. Don't buy into philosophies that sort of meld Christianity with whatever the flavor of the day is. Don't use philosophy as a lens through which to view Christianity and interpret the Bible in light of the current thought processes. You know what we're to do? The opposite. We're to interpret the thought processes of today through the biblical worldview. That's what God wants us to do so that we can stay pure and true to what God has said. Look at the warning in verse 21, and with that we'll close. Some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. Some people were being sucked in by the false teaching of Gnosticism. And when they did that, they departed from the faith. Now, what is the faith? As we've gone through Timothy, we've seen that it means the collection of teachings that the apostles gave us so that we can know God's truth and God's revelation. Listen, don't depart from what God has revealed. It's there so we can know Him and know what it is to live for Him. And any departure from that is dangerous. As we've gone through Timothy, we've seen that we have a responsibility to serve God to the best of our ability, to use what He's entrusted to us, to His glory, and for the good of those around us, and to stay pure, committed to God's Word. I hope that our study in 1 Timothy has encouraged you in these things. And I think you're going to find much more as we go into the book of 2 Timothy. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you that it's a reminder to us to keep in perspective what really counts. It's not the philosophies of our day. It's not the power and influence of our day. It's not the wealth of our day. All of those come and go. But Lord, what truly counts is what we lay up as a foundation for the eternal. Help us to be wise in these things. To live for your power, your glory, and your honor. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.